0: ears and we're not telling you what any of it's about. Until you become a member. And then we shoot you an email. See? Yeah yeah. It pays to have privilege, huh? Oh yeah, yeah, that's true too. Yeah. Good grief. Anyway, we are in the gospel of Mark. Resuming in chapter where we've been for a few weeks, and we'll continue. And where we are to date, even though we're only four chapters into the record of Mark, the disciples have had various experiences now, personally experiencing Jesus and his uniqueness among men. Remember that Jesus called each one of the disciples by name, and they followed, and he instructed them, personally. This was you know, before Instagram. This was before YouTube, you know, when he you could just send them a link to go online and uh, to get a video about how to fish more effectively, guys, you know, those sorts of things. But no, they'd had uh, uh, some profound experiences with him already. In Capernaum, they watched as Jesus addressed the scholars in the synagogue and noted that there was, there was this different authority about him And it was so different that it just stood out and it was totally distinct than the pretense of authority assumed by all the other scholars that the people were used to who would come to the synagogue to preach and speak. Rather, Jesus was an authority that emanated from His being. It wasn't something that He had to point out and to demand. His wasn't an, (laughs) if you're old enough, an Alexander Haig moment the day that President Reagan was shot and somehow or another the Vice President couldn't be found or some such thing and it made news it was a big deal it was controversial but there stood Alexander Haig then Secretary of State on the White House grounds and he said quoting as of now I am in control here in the White House pending return of the Vice President and oh there was so much to do about it and everything else well That unnerved the American people for a number of reasons, but what unnerved the religious leaders of Jesus' day was precisely that His intrinsic authority was difficult to deny. By this time, Jesus' disciples heard Him shut the mouths of demons. They saw Peter's mother-in-law raised up from the dead. The diseased leper came desperately to Jesus and what did Jesus do? He undiseased him. He took a man who had been let down through the roof of a packed house thinking that he needed healing from his physical infirmity. And so Jesus making a profound point again about his comprehensive authority heals him of his, of his real need which is being healed of his spiritual affirmity called sin which nobody could see. And then he compassionately goes on and heals him of his paralysis which nobody could deny. After giving the people a demonstration of his might, they listened as he upended centuries of religious rituals, intentionally violating their strained notion of purity by trampling on their understanding of the Holy Sabbath while continuing to silence demons who ironically... Were Jesus' greatest publicists. And after speaking in the intentionally mysterious parables as we've been in for the last several weeks, Jesus yet again has to get away from the thronging crowds. And He does so by getting into a boat and pushing out from the shore. And Jesus now is exhausted from the demands on the miracle-working minister, and so He falls deeply asleep under really extreme circumstances. We pick up with Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took Him along with them in the boat, just as He was, and other boats were with Him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus Himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke Him and they said to Him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And the supercilious, sanctimonious me wants to reply on Jesus' behalf, and don't you care that I am thoroughly spent from caring for all of you? who are destined for an eternity in hell. we got to cut them some slack, a lot of slack. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced being out in the ocean or any body of water for that matter. When a storm pretty quickly was either approaching, maybe it didn't even hit you yet. But I've been in a situation where I've been in that, that little motorboat, you know, with a fishing pole, and seeing all of a sudden these big nimbi plural of nimbus, cumulonimbuses. Cumuling them by Clyde's, which are big thunderheads, moving in really quickly, and all of a sudden the wind comes up, and you know, you got your little four horsepower thing as you're skipping over the water, you know, just keeping looking back on where Because this is the last place in the world I want to be caught. Now, take that and put it out on the ocean in a little bitty boat, because this was your typical fishing boat in the day. They're out there on the sea. And the storm comes up, a violent, raging storm, and the waves are slapping over the ship, and the ship is filling up with water. And you know, if there's one thing at all that I appreciate about Jesus and being God, which is obvious in so many different ways, but one that maybe we don't really note, is falling asleep under the circumstances. Here I am at home with my Tempur-Pedic mattress, my tempur cervical pillow, which, by the way, public service announcement. Someone came up to me after the first service saying, Did you misspeak a cervical pillow? Thinking cervix. And I'm like, Are you serious? And yeah, they were. Okay, okay. You ever heard of a cervical collar? Big thing you get. These are called your cervical vertebrae. Ah. Oh. So I just wanted to make clear, yes, it's called a cervical pillow, all right? It's got a curve fit. Anyway, and a fan going, white noise, you know, perfectly air flow through the room with the windows open and everything else. And I still can't sleep. Jesus is in a violent storm and the waves are hitting. And I mean, he's got to be wet. And he's under this little bitty stern. You can see the stern. There's not much to it. And he's... <laughs> wow. I take something. The disciples are freaking out. Aren't you concerned? Not that we could perish, but that we are perishing. <laughs> Verse 39. So, so Jesus got up. Oh, geez, really, guys? Nice, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, at least by way of translation, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly still. The details by Mark are included there to highlight and punctuate the contrast between what it was and what it becomes after the Master speaks. Well, what did Jesus say? Hush, be still. No, to the wind Jesus exclaims, I think he was a little annoyed from being wakened up. (laughs) Hey, take it out on creation. Why not? Be silent, as many translations say. No, it doesn't mean be silent. It means be silenced. You say, well, that's pretty nitpicky. There's no difference. Oh, yes, there is. And the difference is rather monumental. You see, to say be silent is soliciting cooperation by the one being asked. You can be silent or not. But Jesus doesn't ask the wind to decide to be quiet. He orders it. Be silenced! And to the turbulent seas, He commands, Paphimosa! Waves! Cease! And the currents relax. And the ocean completely calms and becomes as glass. When the Creator commands His creation, the creation is obligated to comply put yourselves in the shoes of the twelve in that instant that Jesus commands there is tranquility this wasn't something that came on over a few minutes or a few hours or whatever they oh yeah, then you know first of all the wind started dying down incrementally and then the clouds started breaking up and you know maybe they could see stars in the sky and everything else and the sea gradually came down and then, no Jesus said be silent be still and it was done. It was stark. And it was intended to be. What was a harrowing, frightening experience with the power of raging seas, the twelve thought they were done. And Jesus says to them, verse 40, Why are you so cowardly? How? Do you still have no faith dang let's remember that at least some of these guys are fishermen this wasn't anything that new to them Jesus words stung because he's basically calling them a bunch of sissies well they're afraid for their lives seeing the torrent of nature around them raising its fury, but then this Jesus who takes command of the natural elements, annoyed it seems that they wake Him from a desperately needed slumber, He rebukes them not for their cowardice, but for their slowness in believing who it is that is on board with them, who it is that is before them. Do you still... Have no faith. What do you mean still? This isn't a compliment. Jesus knows who He's working with. Jesus knows what they've already experienced firsthand in His company long before this episode, and it seems that there's almost exasperation in His voice, again, if not disappointment. But if we think that those men were afraid of nature's demonstration of power. When they behold the Creator of the universe commanding the elements like a puppy being housebroken, the text tells us that they didn't simply fear. They feared a great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind... And the sea obey Him. And we have to work a little bit here to let this impact us. Instead of just running through what's a a pretty familiar vignette to a lot of us and allowing familiarity of the passage breed boredom. I don't know what your personal experiences have been with nature up close and personal. But I know that we have all vicariously experienced various things on the media and all of that of nature's fearsome fury, seeing news clips of of tornadoes and their aftermath and tsunamis and earthquakes and avalanches. When I witness the might of the force of nature up close and personal as I have on varied occasion from tornadoes, having grown up in the what's called Tornado Alley, to electrical storms. If you are from Maine, you don't know what electrical storms are. I've been here 25 years and I've never seen one. I've seen storms, very few and far between, with some lightning. That's not an electrical storm. Trust me on that one. They are frightening and horrendous. We had 32 Funnel clouds within an eight-mile radius of our house one fine spring day. Thirty-two. Fortunately, none of them touched down. We've seen the devastation of earthquakes on TV and most recently in Nepal. I've seen, again, up close and personal, the devastation from the huge forest fires. And what happens in all of those experiences to me at any rate is my head invariably runs to, yes, the might and force of nature, but even more to the might of the One who is the Sovereign over those forces. The first time I passed directly over the devastation of a mountain called St. Helens only months after it had erupted I was sitting on a plane, making our way into our approach of Seattle, and I'm not positive that the pilot said this, though I think he did. I think he said, if you're on whatever side of the airplane and you look out, you will see we will be going right over Mount St. Helens. So I'm watching, and I'm watching, and, you know, you can't see very far front or behind when you're in the airplane, And, and I'm watching these huge, lush, green, gigantic forests of the Pacific Northwest, and all of a sudden, quite quickly, It went from that that lush, bountiful forest to an absolute monochromatic gray where the remains of forest lay flat and crushed and absolutely completely denuded of any foliage by the force of a mountain literally blowing its top off. About two years after that, now living in Seattle, became a mountain climber and standing on the top of Mount Rainier, staring across from one crater 35 miles as the crow flies into another crater of what had been the summit of a majestic snow-covered mountain, there was already visible a lava dome that was beginning to rise up like a pimple on an adolescent's chin. Even from 35 miles away, the realization of the force that was involved in that whole scenario makes one's knees weak. Let me read you an excerpt from the day of that eruption. A 5.1 magnitude earthquake from within Mount St. Helens triggered the collapse of the mountain's north flank releasing the largest landslide in recorded history and a volcanic eruption equal in power to 500 atom bombs. As much as a cubic mile of volcanic material shot upward and sideways, the lateral blast traveled at more than 300 miles per hour with temperatures in excess of 600 degrees, destroying 230 square miles of forest. Within seconds, the trunks of thousands of 150-foot-tall old-growth Douglas firs snapped like toothpicks. Rock, snow, and ice roared down the mountain at speeds of more than 100 miles per hour. Ash rained down over 22,000 square miles, blew more than 12 miles into the atmosphere, and circled the globe in 17 days. When the ash finally cleared, the mountain was reduced by 1,313 feet. The disciples are in the midst of their own torrent, in the middle of the sea, It's a nightmare. It is deafeningly loud. And they are a mere speck at the mercy of the thoughtless winds and waters. And they are scared for their lives, and rightly so. But when the Creator, when the Master, orders the elements into submission, there is that moment of exhilarating relief that they have been spared. But then it dawns on them what just happened. The problem now isn't that they don't know who Jesus is. The problem is they are beginning to see who Jesus is. And it is more frightening than being face to face with the raging of nature. The Apostle Luke records in chapter 23 of his Gospel then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us! And to the hills, cover us! For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Do you know what the context is of that verse? Jesus is on His way to Golgotha, the hill of the skull, where Jesus would be nailed to a cross. He was speaking of those who would reject the Savior. and when He returns as conquering King. When we read John's record of Revelation chapter 6, he writes, I looked when He broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? The problem now isn't that the disciples in the boat don't know who Jesus is. The problem is they are beginning to see exactly who He is. In an earlier account of Peter and his crew getting skunked fishing, Luke records basically the same incident, but he chooses to put in again some details that Mark chooses not to. Luke records that when Jesus told Peter and his men to put down their nets when they were out there and they had been fishing all night and they didn't do anything, men after my own hearts, when Jesus told them to put their nets elsewhere, What happened was they began to break from the bounting. Do you remember Peter's reaction? It is not one of elation at the miraculous catch. What is Peter's reaction? He's scared to death saying, Depart from Me! For I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, when a person is blessed, and it is blessed... To have the Spirit of God open a sinner's eyes to the holiness of God, it cannot help but highlight and underscore and accentuate the sinfulness of the sinner. And it, to say the least, is an uncomfortable moment. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In my earliest days of reading through the Bible, I dreaded coming to Leviticus. Which if you're doing it from beginning to end, you know it comes real quickly. Genesis, Exodus, Uh, Leviticus. (laughs) The book that is so full of repetition. That is so full in first blush and second blush. It's so full of things that are just seemingly so irrelevant to us, and it's monotonous. And so, the goal of getting through Leviticus was just that to get through Leviticus. But in the third year, I believe it was, something happened. Something changed. Because this time, as I was reading the tedious book, it was in that tedium that the more I read the repetitious instructions of worship, the more I read the rules of sacrifice, the details of cleanliness, the bounds of sexual relations, the care of bodily discharges, ew! Offerings for this and offerings for that and offerings for the things that you knew you did and then offerings for the things that you didn't even know that you did. And what dawned on me was that every single area of my life is polluted and needs cleansing before approaching a holy, sin-hating God. And with that sense of blessed, of blessed shame and guilt, the Spirit brought to light in a profound new way that my cleansing had already been secured by the blood and the sacrifice of the substitutionary life of my Savior. And that, in fact, is the point of Leviticus. God is holy. We are not but He has provided all that we need. And candidly, for some time now, and it comes and it goes and it waxes and it wanes, I do grow a bit concerned now and again that in our day of being approachable and humorous and inviting and welcoming, that we don't at times transgress an obscene informality approaching a lack of reverence for the Lord our God. We would do well to meditate on these verses. Well, just as quickly as Mark has the disciples freaking out on the lake in the storm, he brings them back to shore with a brand new episode, if you will, a new vignette. Picking up in chapter 5, verse 1. So they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Consequently, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. But seeing Jesus from a distance... The demonized man ran up and bowed down before him. This man has an extreme case of what is called demonization, which is the proper way of translating and reading in the Scripture. There is no word for demon possession in the Bible. That was something the translators decided to throw in, which it was unfortunate because it gives all sorts of misconceptions now to what demons can and can't and do, do, and don't do, and to whom. The man was demonized, <laughs> for sure. Dwelling among the tombs is not something that a normal person in their right mind does. Oh, going and hanging out and being cool and maybe even doing some kind of stupid little thing at Halloween like having a seance which is only inviting demons into your life. Kids, if you're listening. But that's not what this is talking about. This man lived there. It was his home. It was where he found comfort amongst the dead. If you can call it comfort. And he had supernatural strength. People had previously bound Him with chains and shackles, meaning big steel or iron griplets around His ankles and, and His wrists. They couldn't contain Him. For demonic power enabled Him to be able to break those chains and to get those shackles torn off of His body. And He went around screaming as a madman and taking stones and dashing Himself. But seeing Jesus from a distance... The demonized man ran up and bowed down before Him. Now, I had to ask myself just to be sure, was it the man who ran towards Jesus? Meaning, the man of his own volition still had part of that own sense of his mind and decision making that it was the man in his power that ran toward Jesus? Or was it in fact the demon that ran toward Jesus. Well, as we read the rest of the passage, it's clear that the demon, seeing it was Jesus, ran towards him. Now, here is the theological and the spiritual irony. The demon who knows who Jesus is, and that the demon is on borrowed time and is bound for eternal defeat, to a place called hell. The demon runs to Jesus. But now again, remember what I just read and talked about in Luke 5. Peter being out there and seeing Jesus' command over the fish of the sea to where their nets were breaking. And his reply, because he can't run away, is, depart from me, Away from me, Lord. Or I'm a sinner. Peter now in this next vignette, or at least the one we just went over on being out there in the sea in the boat now, he's further down this timeline of getting to know Jesus. He's been hanging out with Jesus, and now they're in the violent storm, and Peter yells at Jesus, Don't you care that we're going to die? Put that up on a shelf for just a few seconds. Back at the graveyard now. The demon yells at Jesus too. Shouting with a loud voice. Verse 7, he says, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. And don't hurt me. Why such a plea by a henchman of the devil? Verse 8, because Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Well, now what? When Jesus commands the realm of Satan, they already know better than we do that they're done for. Verse 9, and he was asking him, what is your name? And the demon said to Jesus, My name is Legion, for we are many." Which means thousands. And the demon began to implore Him earnestly not to send them, all this host of demons, out of the country. In Luke chapter 8, He says they begged Him not to send them to the abyss. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored Jesus, saying, send us into the herd of swine so that we may enter into them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. About 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. This story has always been perplexing to me at numerous levels. And I've learned to be content as I read Scripture over all these years of not having answers to all of my questions. But why did Jesus permit them to go into the herd? This is only... A possible answer. First, remember the paralytic that I already talked about who was let down through the roof. He wanted to be healed of his physical issue. Jesus knew that he had a much more pressing issue, namely his spiritual issue. He needed to be healed of sin before anything else. And then, Jesus heals him of his physical condition because you cannot see someone being healed of sin. But you can see a paralytic being told to rise and take up your pallet and go. And he does so. So possible answer about the herd of swine, and that's all it is, was perhaps so that the people had profound evidence that Jesus had in fact cast out a thousand plus demons, which verse 16 certainly seems to give some support to they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, remember, forget it, demonized, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. They became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demonized man and all about the swine. Remember that in Romans chapter 1, God says, I have put My mark upon everyone. I have given a knowledge of Myself as the Creator to everyone who has ever been born into the world and ever will be. Nobody is with excuse. For their denial of God, there is no such thing as an atheist. Only someone who has chosen to suppress, reject, and bury the knowledge that God says He has given. So when the not yet regenerate individual comes face to face with righteousness, comes face to face with that holiness and all that that means, it is at first unnerving, to put it mildly. And then it is fearful, fearful, because of the internal conviction that there is a difference between the One who is perfect and you. When sinfulness is confronted by holiness, the natural response is to flee. So when the crowds heard about the demons and they saw the herds that rushed to their death, do they flock now in revival, in repentance to Jesus pleading for mercy? Verse 17 says, no, they began to entreat Jesus to leave their region. Get out of here, Jesus. Peter, leave me. What do I have to do with you? I am a sinful man, O God. Verse 18, Jesus was getting into the boat. And the man who had been demonized was imploring Jesus, that he might go along with him, that he might accompany him. And Jesus didn't let him. But instead, Jesus said to him, no, 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 no. Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. And so he went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Jesus' answer to the formerly demonized man surprises me, but I now understand it. You see, the constant focal point of this Gospel, of Mark's rendition of the life of Jesus, has been what? Go back to chapter 1, verse 38. Jesus has been on the scene. He's been working miracles and healing people and everybody was attracted to that. But remember what it was doing? It was stifling the very reason He came. And so He says to the disciples under the cover of darkness and He was trying to basically hide, but they found Him. He says, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also for that is why I came. So isn't Jesus concerned about this baby Christian? Isn't he concerned about somebody, I mean, brand spanking, new, born again, about being grounded? I mean, he needs discipling. He needs to be mentored. He needs spiritual experience. Yep, all that's true. But he says, without so many words, to the formerly demonized man. You know better, you know better the power of God than all the highly educated religious experts of our day. And you know what just happened to you. You know what just took place in your life and what changed it and who changed it. So go and show and tell. By far the number one reason why Christians talk so rarely, if ever, to anybody else, even try to, about faith, about their faith. Probably 20 times, maybe 50 times more than any other excuse I've ever heard. And I'm not talking about baby Christians. You know what? That never seems to be an issue with them. Truly. Some of the most outspoken, on fire for people are those like the demonized man who just experienced the liberating love of Christ. No, it's after we start growing up and we get mature. And we've been in Bible study. We've been in so many Bible studies, I can't even recount them all. We get jam packed full of knowledge. And yet I can't. I, have you ever talked to your neighbor about No. Well, how come? Well,. <laughs> Because I just I don't know the Bible very well at all, and they ask questions, and I know I'm not going to know the answers to those questions, and I'm going to look stupid, feel stupid, and it's not going to serve the purpose of Christ. <laughs> Jesus says, I mean, you can't get any younger of a Christian than the formerly demonized man. Let me go with you, Jesus. I need, I need some study. I need some say, so, Yeah, 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 you do. But, no, go and tell people what I just did for you. It doesn't matter how they respond. It doesn't matter the questions they ask. It doesn't matter if they say anything or if they ridicule you. You just go and tell them what I just did in your life. And there you have the power of God in witnessing, in evangelism, whatever you want to call it. And let ineffective witnesses like me who have many of the answers and many of the arguments worry about those other people. Did you catch what I said in there? (laughs) That was intentional. This newly born Christian was effective. How many of us who have been Christian for years and years and years are so utterly ineffective? Let him who has ears hear what the Lord is saying this morning. Let me have you stand. Is it you? Who is it? Sorry. Jim? Huh? Don. Ah, sorry. I do get those memos. I just, you know, kind of forget them.
1: And My wife and I went away for our 35th anniversary. And just to come back, yes, actually the the applause is directed to my bride. Uh, I was just, because of that absence, you know, and coming here, listening how good the sound was and to listen to ten brothers and sisters lead us in worship, and it was so good. I cut trees for a living, and there are certain times when a song is played a certain way. In my mind, I say, I could cut trees to that song. And that was going on in my heart this morning, so praise God for that. And before I forget, I want to put one plug in there, too. I don't know if you had a chance to go to the movie War Room, but if you haven't, and you like a story that would get your coffee the right temperature and have a storyline that's talking about a real good butt-kicking, don't miss it. It was really good. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for being in your house. We thank you for God-centered worship. We thank you for a man who was called to the purpose to open the scriptures and exegete it, take what's in there and make it plain to us. Uh, We thank you for the work of your spirit, and we would ask this, Lord, that you would stir us up and give us opportunities, Lord, to tell what great things that you have done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.